podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. With me, as she is almost every month, hell or high water, the host with the angelic voice, Lydia. <laughs> with the angelic, believe me, my husband would not agree with you on that one. But I do occasionally sing opera around the house. My favorite is the man's part. True story. Right. Anyway, <laughs> how are you doing, Christopher? Uh, just fine on this episode of Things You Didn't Know About Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> every week. Well, every month. Every month. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How about yourself? As well as I can be under the circumstances. At least I'm... Above ground, right? Exactly. Very good. <laughs> uh, before we get started, I just want to remind all our listeners, you can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. I'm, I've been told you can do it through Google Play. I don't know. I've yet to figure out that uh, <laughs> particular thing. I have a hard time even finding it on Google Play. But anyway, it's supposedly, according to Google, it's there. There you go. <laughs> Something I get mine through Podbean, and I know we're on there. Good, good. A much easier place to subscribe to, as far as Orphan Entertainment, is our YouTube channel, where you can catch a lot of the films that we cover here on the podcast. And, of course, uh, Facebook. You can, If you're a Facebook user, you can go over to our Facebook group. Just look for Orphan Entertainment. And any feedback or anything, just send it to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. I think that uh, covers everything. Yeah, think so? I think so. <laughs> uh, with that, we are going to take a short break and listen to another five-minute mystery and a promo for another wonderful podcast. And when we come back, we are going to discuss 1946's Angel on My Shoulder. Another five-minute mystery. Doctor, I'm Mike Patterson. It's my father. Is he all right? We'll see, Mike. Where's the car? Just kept going after he got hit. He's all right, isn't he? I'm afraid not, Mike. Your father is dead. But, Mr. Floyd, how can the insurance company be so heartless? Now, don't get me wrong, Mr. Patterson. You'll get the money in time, just as soon as I've heard the story from you and Dr. Warren. And time is not good enough. I don't even have money to bury him decently. I'll be frank with you, Patterson. That's one of the reasons I've been asked to investigate this. You don't mean to say that... don't get upset. Just tell me the story as it happened. You'll probably get the money tonight. Let's begin with you, Dr. Warren. There's nothing much I can tell you, Mr. Floyd. Doctor, whatever you can. Mike's father was a man of about 65. His left leg was missing. That happened in a railroad crash. It was years ago. He seems to have used a single crutch to help him, judging from the callus on his hand. Is that correct, Mike? Yes, practically all the time. Where did the automobile hit him, Dr. Warren? Mainly on the right side, from the look of things. That's where the worst damage was done. All right. Mr. Patterson, suppose you tell me what you know about it. Well, we were walking north, facing the traffic on the highway. And the car that hit him was going south. That's right. I particularly noticed the license plate as it approached. It was a Florida car, maybe heading home. What make? I don't know. But it was from Florida. I was helping my dad along, as I always did when he walked on the highway. And this car came along at a terrific speed and swerved towards us. I tried to pull my father off the road, but he couldn't move fast enough. The car hit him with a sickening thud and, and jerked him away from me. That's all I can tell you. Well, I've got the whole story now, I think, from my report. I want to thank you, both of you. This will facilitate action. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I suppose that means that I can get the money soon. Not exactly. That means that you'll go to the electric chair for the murder of your father. Why did Mr. Floyd charge Mike Patterson with murder? See if you can find the two flaws in his story. In a moment, you'll hear Mr. Floyd explain. But first... It's 1966... The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. 
and giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack, the serialized giant monster story, presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. And now, let's see if your observation is as keen as Mr. Floyd's. Let me go. Let me go, I tell you. You can't prove a thing. Mr. Floyd, why did you accuse Mike of murdering his father? Was it simply because he's beneficiary? No, Doctor. There are two things wrong with this story. First, he said his father was hit by a car with Florida license plates in front. Florida hasn't had front license plates in years. But more important, Mike said he was helping his father. Now, if a man's left leg is off, he uses a crutch on that side and is helped on the right side. And if they were facing traffic, Mike would have been on the inside and would have been hit by the car. We suspected what happened when we saw blood on Mike's own car, but now we know. On My Shoulder, as I said, was from 1946. It was an independent production. It was produced by Charles Rogers and David Siegel. It was directed by Archie Mayo. Its main stars are Paul Mooney uh, as Eddie Cagle and Judge Parker. He does a dual role here. Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ann Baxter as Parker's fiance and secretary and the uh, oh, her, who's Barbara? Sorry, I locked, completely left her name out of my notes. And the incredible Claude Rains as Nick the Devil. <laughs> uh, the film's working title was Me and Satan, but the, uh, <laughs> but, but the producers decided to change it, thinking that it might be a good idea to downplay the devilish aspects of the film. Yeah, I'm cracking up because I don't see how that could have gotten by the censors. No. <laughs> like, there's just no way they would have been like, sure, let's just call it that. Yeah, that, that's pretty much the, uh, what can we call our film that would guarantee it never to see a theater? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nobody would ever come see it. <laughs> our stall, star here, Paul Mooney, was a stage and screen actor who grew up in Chicago and started his acting career in the Yiddish theater there. He made 25 films, which is kind of a low number for actors at this time. You know, a lot of the actors we talk about, Lydia, are always in the you know, 150, 75, 100 credits to their name. That era, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, because most of them were uh, contract players where the studio said, you're going to do this, and that's what they did. He was actually very well-liked by the studio, and they actually gave him the power to pick and choose the roles that he, that he wanted. And he was very particular about those parts that he would undertake. He was noted for his intense preparation for his roles, especially the biographies. You know, if he was actually portraying someone that existed and that had that either did or had existed in real life, mm-hmm. and he had immersed himself in the habits and mannerisms of the real people. Uh, that strategy worked really well for him in the 1936 film, The Story of Louis Pasteur, which he uh, actually was the one he he talked Warner Brothers into even making the film and he ended up winning an Academy Award for Best Actor. Wow, I was not aware of that. Uh, despite his popularity among critics and the studio, he was not the biggest fan of Hollywood and would often step away to do more of the theater work. He started think, numerous... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think you see that in, you know, his his film... The, the years that he was in Hollywood, he'd do two or three films, and then he was gone for a couple Gaps, of years. Right. Exactly. In fact, it was, the, it was this film. Well, it wasn't this, necessarily this film that drew him back, but it was after a gap that he came back and, like, like you said, did a couple of films back-to-back in, like, 45 and 46, one of which being uh, Angel on My Shoulder. And, but prior to that, he had taken a break, and he was on Broadway or doing some stage work. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that he was the original Tony in the oh, – well, he was Tony in the original Scarface? Yes. Oh, that's right. I didn't have that in my notes, but he is the, the original Tony in Scarface. I think Al Pacino actually even kind of credited him as when he took on the role. He really studied Paul Mooney in his role to kind of 
prepare for the, the, the role himself. Yeah, and I feel like this in this particular movie is not a huge step away from that role either. Sure. It was definitely the gangster part, which is yeah. – <laughs> I think uh, I remember reading. I I didn't look through all his filmography, but I think that it wasn't a role that he wasn't that he was unfamiliar with. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, on Broadway, he uh, you know he did numerous Broadway plays. He uh, actually won a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play for a role in the 1955 production of Inherent the Wind. So yeah, very talented actor. Yeah, definitely. Now, Anne Baxter, who uh, plays Barbara here. She's another award-winning actress with an Oscar and a Golden Globe and even a nomination for a Primetime Emmy. She's the granddaughter of Frank Lloyd Wright, which I I thought that was cool. That is interesting. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, She studied acting and had some stage experience before making her film debut in the film 20 Mule Team in 1940. She became a contract player at 20th Century Fox and was loaned out to RKO, RKO Pictures for a role in Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. Hmm. In 1947, she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Sophie McDonald in The Razor's Edge. And she was nominated for Best Actress in the title role in All About Eve uh, from 1950. Interesting. Through her career, she worked with some of Hollywood's greatest directors, including Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, and Fritz Lang. Mm -hmm. She worked regularly in television in the 1960s, including a guest villain, Zelda the Great, in the Batman series. (laughs) And then also as Olga, Queen of the Cossacks, uh, opposite Vincent Price's Egghead in Batman. Uh, She also played an old flame of Raymond Burr on his crime series, Ironside. So she's a little bit more of the kind of career we're used to seeing from the period, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't hear you say it. Maybe I, I might have zoned out, but she was also Nefertiti in The Ten Commandments, the um, original, the big one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the big one that we all know about. Now, Claude Rains was a British film and stage actor who made his American film debut as the title character in Universal Pictures' The Invisible Man. Which is a brilliant role. Man, talk about making his American debut and really just taking it by storm. Fantastic role. Carried a lot by his voice, which I I love listening to Claude Rains talk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He also appeared in some classic films, including The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wolfman, another universal picture, and of course, Casablanca. As Captain Louis <laughs> Renault. Oh, I loved that movie, and I love him in it. Uh, what was the great... Uh, I'm shocked, shocked to see that there's gambling going on here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but done in only the way he could in, in, with his very particular voice. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, he also made a really good Phantom of the Opera in 1943. I really like him in that, too. Again, because he of the voice. Yeah. He wasn't the title in that, was he? He was. Oh, he was Eric. Oh, yep. I see that now. Oh my goodness! Wow. He wasn't it? I'm gonna have to I go would, back and watch that I w- again. I would strongly suggest watching it again. Oh yeah. Because of because of the voice. I mean, in the beginning of the film, you really don't see him. He's talking to. Uh, well, I can't think of her name now. The the, act, the character in the Phantom of the Opera, Christine. Well, Christine. Well, and and it's before the Andrew Lloyd Webber score. So you've got none of the music that was, you know, that it's so well known for that made it such a huge story. So it's it's it gets lost in that because mostly what we know is the Andrew Lloyd Webber version. So that's interesting. I definitely I did not connect him with that. I'm going to have to go back and look at that again. Yeah, I'd recommend it. He was a four time nominee for the Best Supporting Actor Academy Award, but he never won. Uh, Betty Davis named him one of her favorite co-stars. They made four films together, including Now Voyager and Mr. Skeffington. (laughs) And he became the first actor to receive a million-dollar salary when he portrayed Julius Caesar in a large-budget production of Caesar and Cleopatra, Mm -hmm. which was penned by George Bernard Shaw and Mm -hmm. co-starred Vivian Leigh. I should say it was a big-budget production. That was actually a bit of a financial flop, unfortunately. Uh, that's all the trivia I have. I it just wanted to throw in a little bit because really none of them were I, – I didn't want to leave any of them out because there's just mm-hmm. really great points about everyone that stars in this film. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and the three main characters in this are all, I think, pretty exceptional. Yes. For for different reasons, the two main guys in this, Eddie and Nick, are both extremely strong characters, and you know, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting because you kind of you know, even though it's obvious who the main character is, you have these moments where you're wondering, you know, who really is the main character. <laughs> Angel on My Shoulder opens with a small title card that says that this story is about Eddie Cagle, who based his way of living on what Omar Khayyam once said, live fully while you may and reckon not the cost. <laughs> the actual film opens in a at a state penitentiary where we see Eddie being released from a four-year stint. He is picked up by his pal and former partner, Smiley Williams. Smiley and Eddie talk a bit about uh, Eddie's time at the pen, and how Smiley has been kind of keeping the business alive. Smiley keeps telling Eddie that the, the car, the money, everything, it all belongs to Eddie. But Eddie keeps kind of correcting him and saying, no, no, it's ours, it's ours, just like always. So Eddie's kind of a um, an honest crook, I guess. Eddie asks if Smiley has his gun, or his rod. You got my rod? His rod, yeah. <laughs> Smiley tells him that he's wearing it right next to his heart. Well, Eddie tells him to give it to me. How does he put it? I've I don't think he says. Oh, give he it. says, "Give it to me." Yeah, does he, he give, says, "Oh, give it to me." Give it to me. Or let me have it. <laughs> let me have it. I think it let is. Me well, let me it. have it. Well, see, so yeah, Smiley does with four shots right to the face. <laughs> this is the, is the biggest surprise for me. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm notorious for not watching trailers before I watch a movie. I know I'm going to see. This is this causes a lot of strife between me and my husband and my brother. But <laughs> <laughs> but I was totally surprised. You know. And I, I think they did it brilliantly because obviously I love that they didn't show him being shot because the next thing that we see is smoke and fire. Yeah. It's a kind of a point of view from Eddie's uh, uh, perspective of just Smiley sitting there driving the car, pointing the gun. Sure, Eddie, here you go. Smiling while he fires four shots right at him. I actually really like is you, I think you see the first shot go off and then the other three shots, it's dark. You Mm -hmm. You just hear them. So you didn't really read any of the synopsis or anything? I go into movies knowing nothing about them if I possibly can. Very nice. I usually at least try to kind of read a brief synopsis and see. I want to be surprised my first time. And the worst part is sometimes I, you know, if I see a trailer, then I know I'm going to have, I have to see the movie. And so halfway through the trailer, I cover my ears and close my eyes. I'm the only person I know that does this. Yes. More things you didn't know about Lydia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so it's horrible. So now I know I have to go see the new Spider-Man. I have a vendetta against superhero movies right now. Not always. Don't freak out if you're listening to this and go, oh, Lydia hates superheroes. That's not the case. They've just been overdone lately. But the new Spider-Man saw the first part of it. Now I know I have to see it. So now I can't watch the trailer. It's a thing. So, no, I went into it completely not knowing that that Eddie gets knocked off in the first three minutes of the movie. It was a very big surprise for me. And now we've completely ruined the surprise for all of you listening. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you watched it before this. Well, after a seemingly endless drop, Eddie finds himself in a very desolate and very hot place. There is fire and smoke everywhere. He wanders around a bit and bumps into some other people, uh, including some folks calling themselves trustees. He meets one fellow who explains the nasty smell that seems to permeate the place. Gosh, it's hot here. Gets like this in Florida sometimes. Florida? I never smell like this. Like rotten eggs. Precisely, young man. Rotten eggs. The unpleasant odor is caused by H2SO4. Hydrogen sulfuric acid. The most common compound of hydrogen and sulfur. I poisoned my wife with a sulfur compound. My young wife. She was unfaithful. I was a chemist. What do you mean? Was. Before they hanged me. Well, Eddie kind of takes a while to really catch on. And even when he finally realizes where he is, his first thought is breaking out. Well, I want to say, too, this is this. I was kind of this added to my shock at him dying at first. Because then all of a sudden, not only is he dead, he goes straight to hell. Most 
most movies, you know, he'd go to the pearly gates and then be told, no, you got to go one way or the other, you know. Mm. Oh, sure. But no, he goes straight to hell. It's very obviously hell. And they never say it. But, you know, there's brimstone, there's fire, there's smoke. People are miserable. He's staggering around, can't breathe. It's crazy hot. Mm. And I thought – this is the 1940s and they seriously are depicting hell. I was really, I was kind of, again, you know, you go back to the censors and I thought, really? Like, (laughs) I I guess because of how they handled it saying, this is a really obviously a bad guy. And of course he went to hell. You know, I suppose that's how it got by, but I was kind of, I guess, impressed that they showed it, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just, doing, you know, a black screen and conversation or something. They actually really went to a lot of effort to show hell. Right. <laughs> well, next we see a, a very large room. Looks to be some sort of uh, maybe an office or something. A private room uh, in hell. <laughs> we <laughs> private see... room in hell. That sounds and... like a book title. Now I'm going to have to write it. Yeah. <laughs> private room in hell. <laughs> yeah, if, that, it's not, if, that's not, if that's not some sort of, like, you know, film noir kind of thing, you know, detective... <laughs> It sounds like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. somebody should be wearing a fedora in that one. <laughs> well, in this room, we see a man stepping out of a wall of flames. This man notices the thermometer on the wall, and the temperature is dropped to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, love- Celsius, Kelvin. Yeah. I don't know. but <laughs> I love that little – it's not a graphic, but, but you know, that little – the thermometer Prop. dropping. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's going down to 180 degrees. I, it's, <laughs> I love it. It's so poignant. This is, of course, Claude Rains. What sort of temperature is that? It's the labor shortage, sire. Especially the boiler room personnel. There's been a fearful drop. We are operating at but 73% of normal. You want me to catch my death of cold? No, sire. We're short of condemned souls. I objectly suggest... Warden, I have no need of your infantile suggestions. I'll attend to this matter myself. My opponent has always, through some favored mortal of his, tested my price. This time it happens to be one Judge Frederick Parker of the New World. Well, we'll see who goes down to defeat. My beloved sire... Your powers are wondrous to behold. Yes, I love him sitting there. It's dropping to 180 degrees and he's shivering in his chair mm-hmm. and just rubbing his arms to warm himself up. Well, Eddie, scuffling with the guards and trustees, busts into the, into the room. And I love the line, what in my domain is that? Yes. <laughs> well, and it's there's a bit of a conversation that happens before Eddie and his guards burst in there. Mm-hmm. and And it's... It's I, I don't want to say endearing. <laughs> I hate it's a it's imaginative, I think is the right phrase for it. Yes. Where you have this character who we come to find out is Nick and you know he's talking about his uh, what is he calling adversary? it? His, his adversary, you know, and how he's always, you know, sending these minuscule mortals to try and, you know, give him trouble and yeah. just his whole He's kind working of overtime trying, trying to make my life more difficult. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and his whole monologue in this moment, it's like he's kind of annoyed and it's but he he knows this is just how things go, mm-hmm. but he keeps dealing with it and he still keeps trying to over. I, I just this something about this monologue that I just, I love it. It grips me. It totally gets, you know, everything that you need to know about the situation in hell without <laughs> having long drawn out, you know, descriptions like I'm creating right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what the podcast is for versus the movie. See, we're not making exactly. a movie. So. We're here to talk about the movie, not exactly. to do it well, not to do the movie. Well, <laughs> After Eddie and the guards bust in, uh, Nick there briefly vanishes as the as the guards finally subdue Eddie and drag him out. Uh, Nick reappears and actually seems delighted uh, by the events and tells the warden that Eddie looks just like this Judge Parker that has given him so much grief. This is just what he needs to defeat Judge Parker and in turn then defeat his uh, <clears throat> adversary upstairs. <laughs> Well, sometime later, we see Eddie at work at the furnaces. While talking and boasting that he will crash out of this place, uh, Nick shows up and appears as a trustee and tells Eddie, uh, Nick offers him a deal. If Eddie helps him get somebody, he'll help, e- he'll help Eddie get Smiley. 
Nick leads him into the furnace, as that is the only way out. This apparently leads him to some sort of elevator, and they begin a long ride up. I'm going to jump in real quick. I I do love to hear, you know, where Eddie's trying to, he's talking about escaping, you know, and they have this whole conversation, and then Nick turns and goes into the furnace, and he says, that's the furnace. He says, it's the only way out, which you mm-hmm. already said. Sorry for recapping. Uh, but but there's a little hesitation there on Eddie's part, you know, yes. and he kind of works work himself up. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, like, works himself up, and he gives himself a little shake, and then he just, but he just goes right in. It's not like he's afraid. It's mm-hmm. just like he's like, all right, well, here we go, and it's and he's like, I'm getting out of here, or I'm burning up. He's just fearless, essentially, and I—that's—I think that's the key attribute of his character. <laughs> is he's just not afraid of anything. How long you been down here? Since time immemorial. The way you talk, you must have had a good education. The most liberal one. I only went to third grade. I went through the whole gamut of learning. I know everything. Stuck on yourself, huh? What's your name? Well, I have a number of aliases. I have a long record under the name of Mephistopheles. Greek, huh? Well, there are some who claim I'm more of one nation than another, but that's not true, Eddie. I'm of all nations. I play no favorites. You look like a con man. Look, Memopopolis. Call me Nick. You're married. Millions of women have adored me. Quite a guy with the ladies, eh? I'm a fascinating fellow. Look, Mark, playing around with dames is dynamite. But delightful dynamite, Eddie. Live fully while you may and reckon not the cost. Deny yourself nothing. Flame and blaze like a torch and toss the fire about you. Oh, Mark, I am, said it. I'll make the most of what we yet may spend before we too into the dust descend. You're talking screw. <laughs> <laughs> is it all right if I laugh occasionally? There ain't nothing to laugh about. I never saw nothing to laugh about my whole life. From the time I left school and ran away from home, I'd come, my folks was always drunk and fighting. I ain't laughed. What I've been doing is trying to be somebody, and I did pretty good. Worked myself up from where I had nothing to eat, no place to sleep, the top guy in my business. Splendid. You're a man after my own heart. I wish the world was filled with Eddie's. How long is it going to take us to get up there? Any moment now. Well, we return to the real world. Eddie and Nick uh, come up, rise up from a street elevator. And Nick explains that no one can see or hear them, and Nick is going to tell Eddie of his plan to find Eddie a body. I think as they're coming up the elevator, too, they have mm-hmm. a little conversation. And and you learn a little bit more about Eddie. He, you know, he says he went through the third grade, and Nick says, you know, he's he's run the whole gamut. He's, you know, right. had all the education. He knows everything in the world, you know, and, and they kind of exchange a little bit of information. And it kind of cracks me up that Eddie... I, I mean, to anybody else, this is obviously hell. This is obviously, I mean, I, I can see how he wouldn't just be expecting Nick to be Nick. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like anybody who's even slightly educated would have picked up on all of the hints that Nick gives him here. Right. So, so it's interesting that they have this conversation and that Nick doesn't just lie to him outright. He tells him all the truth, but it's in such a way that Nick still doesn't realize who he is. Right. No, I'm sorry. That Eddie still doesn't realize who Nick is. Right, because he just introduced himself as Nick. He doesn't actually say, "Oh, yes, I'm." Hello, how do you do? I'm Devil the Satan. I'm the yeah. Devil, right? <laughs> well, then he says, "You know, my name is Mephistopheles." But you know, again, this is you know an educated Greek, huh? person. <laughs> yeah, an educated person knows who that is. But it's interesting because Eddie even says, "I only went through the third grade," so he. You know, so Nick really has an advantage over Eddie because even though he's completely fearless, he's also not an intel oh, not intelligent. He's not an educated person. Right. It's just it's interesting. I think the little kind of insights that we get throughout this. This is actually a great conversation. It is just a few minutes of film, but in that you, like you said, you get the imprint. You you kind of get an idea of okay, Nick's not, or Eddie's not the most intelligent. Uh, you get also a little insight into why he is the way he is, why his life is the way it is. He, he has, it's just this brief, almost throwaway line about how he grew up and his parents were always fighting. And so I was like, okay, he's had a rough life. He had had a rough childhood. He had to find some way out and he wanted to make himself somebody. And that's what he did. So he was on top of things until that smiley got in the way. So it's a real important, like two, three minutes of, uh, of film but it kind of sets everything up and makes the rest of the film and some of the events that happen later on make a little sense. 
Especially right at the end, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, in order to find Eddie a body, uh, Nick leads him to the local courthouse. Uh, they pass through the doors and have a seat in the laps of a couple police officers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. What are you talking? We can't sit there. There's cops there. Oh, they won't even notice. Exactly. <laughs> they just sit on their laps. The trial uh, going on gets a little heated, and the presiding judge stands up to silence the court, but collapses. This judge is, of course, Judge Parker. Uh, in the judge's chambers, the doctors examine him, tells everyone in the in the room that he'll be fine, he just needs some rest. So they all leave as Nick and Eddie uh, pass through the doors and come in. Eddie is a, first a little hesitant to move in on a judge's body. But Nick convinces him and reminds him that this is part of the deal, and Eddie will need the body if he wants to get his revenge on Smiley. So Nick fuses Eddie into Judge Parker. A little later, we are at the judge's apartment. And we meet uh, Dr. Higgins, who is a psychiatrist, as it turns out, and Judge Parker's butler, Albert, and then later his fiancée, Barbara. I like Albert. (laughs) Albert is so sweet. He is. We find out that Parker has been working pretty hard and that uh, uh, Dr. Higgins kind of expected something like this to happen sooner sooner rather than later because of how hard he's working, because not only is he doing all his duties as a judge, he's also running for governor. Well, Eddie wakes up the next morning, and he's happy to find himself solid. And poor Albert. Poor Albert is very confused (laughs) at Eddie's behavior, (laughs) especially at, quote-unquote, the judge referring to himself in the third person all the time. (laughs) Where are, where's where's his digs? What? You know, his rags, his clothes. (laughs) The judges. Uh, in here? (laughs) (laughs) Albert, very worried, calls Barbara so she can get over there. She's very upset. He does, he, the judge is just not himself. Eddie makes Albert, uh, get him tickets to St. Louis and, or as, as, uh, Eddie calls it, St. Louis. And Albert is even more baffled when the judge, after being told and shown where the wall safe is, has to break into it. I love it. And he says, did you forget the combination, sir? And he says, I don't need a combination. (laughs) This is butter, whatever. Eddie leaves, buys a gun, and makes his plane. On the plane, Nick shows up. Hello, Eddie. How'd you get here? I never explained my actions. You better explain to me. I don't like no surprises. I have many more surprises in store for you if you try to run out on me again. I ain't running out on nothing. I was just hopping over to St. Louis to take care of that rat. That rat can wait. Parker comes first. Besides, being up so high makes me uncomfortable. I'm much happier down below. Scared, huh? I abhor altitudes. Hey, what's that? Engine trouble, sir. We'll have to go back to the field. Strange coincidence. Wipe that smile off in your mug. I apologize most humbly. Back at the apartment, Albert Albert fills in Barbara about when in, what went on that morning. She's just as baffled as Albert is about the the behavior that Albert is describing is just so not normal for Judge Parker. Barbara calls Dr. Higgins, who tells her not to be alarmed and that she and Albert should just sort of humor and indulge Parker. I mean, hopefully this will just be a passing abnormality. Psychiatric help in the 1940s apparently was just, I I don't think this was really a good practice. (laughs) Just don't make him mad. Just humor him. Play along. Don't antagonize That's the kind of... uh, (laughs) psychiatric advice that only works in films i don't think that it will ever be advice yeah, exactly. of anyone in the real world well and i like too that he collapses so they call it a psychiatrist yeah well they figure it's a mental strain <laughs> well you get the, the impression too that he's not necessarily really his doctor but a friend but he's sort of stepping in and dying right. doing a little bit of both in fact at one point he even tells barbara that look, look you don't want to you don't want him coming by my office. He's running for governor. The last thing you want to do is have him show up at a psychiatrist's office because people will just assume he's crazy. Whitey shows back up at the apartment, and Nick fills in Eddie that the woman is the judge's fiance. And 
at a very dark turn, encourages him to make the most of it. Quote, unquote, she's all yours, he tells him. That was kind of freaky. <laughs> well, I mean, I get what he's saying. He's saying, you know, hey, I'm sweetening the deal. You know, you didn't even ask for this, but you're throwing a little uh-huh. more in the pot for you. And it, it, totally unrelated, but she looks just like Barbie in this Barbie. Scene. I feel like just her, her face when she smiles looks exactly like my Barbie dolls did. This is in the <laughs> 80s, guys. So Barbie looks extremely frighteningly yes, different now. Really horrifically huge head. But, but <laughs> she looks like the original Barbie. Totally unrelated there. But uh, yeah, it's worth it's worth noting if you're watching this, okay. try not to get distracted. <laughs> Wendy does try to get a little fresh with Barbara, but she manages to hold him off. She also tells him that the judge is due to make a speech that morning. A speech that Nick wants Eddie to make. About this time, we go someplace completely different than we had before. We meet a group of men working for the judge's opponent in the, gov- in the governor race. They figure the judge passing out is an opening they can use. If they can make it seem like the judge is sick and weak, well, their guy is a shoe-in. Well, now Barbara, Eddie, and Nick arrive at the auditorium where uh, Eddie or Judge Parker is supposed to give a speech. Nick spots a couple of uh, men of the cloth and backs away, leaving Eddie to his own devices. Um, <laughs> it's another really sort of great Claude Rains. He's, as his character of Nick, he's very smug. He's very sure of himself. And he kind of turns a corner and sees these a couple of priests, and you see the look on his face. It all, I, you swear, I, it's a black and white film, but you swear you see the like color fall out of his face. <laughs> yeah. Like drains, yeah. Well, Eddie goes on stage. And he's presented with a watch from a group of kids. Uh, as far as the uh, kid actors, we were very stilted and everything, but it really worked for this because they were supposed to be very nervous. And uh, Yeah, I feel like it was intentional. Like I, You've seen movies with horrible child actors in them. And in this case, the kid is supposed to be presenting this thing to this really upstanding public figure in front of you know hundreds of other people. And it makes sense for him to just be completely awkward. <laughs> Well, as part of the judge's introduction, we hear that the judges work with and for the youth of the city. I think he even refers, I think that Nick refers to this at the beginning, where uh, he's kind of giving his monologue and he says, you know, that this this judge is, he's basically removing Nick's fodder, not father, fodder. <laughs> and I think that's what he's referring to. So I think, you know, and I caught that the second time I watched it. And I think it's one of those things where they give you a lot of hints going through or, you know, they even just tell you directly going through what what's happening, but you don't really understand how much trouble this judge is causing Nick until you get into these kind of details. Yeah, because in, in this introduction or when this gentleman is speaking and kind of introducing uh, Judge Parker, he uh, he actually says he says that you know Judge Parker believes that it's a matter of it's not a matter of bad boys and girls, but bad conditions. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, this is something that Eddie could probably relate to mm-hmm, exactly again again laying groundwork for what happens later some of the stuff that can happen later on yeah in the film. and also what eddie says later on mm-hmm. about you know about what the judge can do <laughs> well eddie happens while he's sitting on stage he spots nick in the wings and he actually storms off stage and over to find out why he isn't helping him nick was going to whisper the speech you know tell him what to say well nick tells him to just throw away the speech that he has just tell the crowd off. Just whatever you want to say. Just tell them off. These are these are mostly the people out there. Mostly represent law enforcement and their supporters. So give them give them hell. These are the ones that <laughs> sent you to jail. Exactly. So Eddie goes out there, uh, but before he can start telling everyone off, a group from the other candidates' side shows up and they start throwing some rotten vegetables at him. <laughs> Eddie jumps from the stage and starts beating the tar out of him. I love this. This is the second time you see him just literally leap. And, and leap is the right word, like spread eagle into a group of guys. Because <laughs> yeah. he does it, it down in Nick's office, and then he does it again. And I, he just jumps, just spread eagle out. It's, it's like my cat <laughs> attacking my knees. It's just crazy. Yeah. Well, Nick begs Eddie to stop fighting and just take the hits. So they're not after you, they're after the judge. And, and Eddie's like, yeah, but I'm take, I'm getting hit. I'm the one taking the, you know, the blows. The more uh, Eddie fights, the more of a hero he's actually making the judge. Well, while talking to Nick during the fight, one of the men uh, hits Eddie over the head with a gun and knocks him out. 
He recovers a little while later, and he's surrounded by his supporters and some of the kids. And the kids tell him that he's a real champ. He even gets a small kiss from a young girl. In <laughs> uh, this, the briefest moment seems to sort of soften Eddie. Back at Judge Parker's apartment, Eddie gets Albert to give him some bourbon despite and some cigars, despite Barbara insisting that <laughs> you don't drink or smoke. You're going to make yourself sick. Well, he tries anyway, and it burns his throat and chokes him up. And the cigars have the same effect. And gets him drunk super fast, if I recall correctly. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. He's staggering around. Uh, The next morning, Eddie and Barbara and Nick head to the courthouse. Criminal court building. Yes, ma'am. I have the sworn affidavits and depositions from those witnesses in Chicago. They came in the mail this morning. What witnesses? What's all this about? Chicago should be pretty familiar to you. I understand your bosom pal has opened a couple of night spots, sir. Miss Smiley. Well, who is Smiley, dear? I don't see his name in these documents. When I finish with him, the only place you'll find his name will be on a tombstone. Well, what is he to do with the Bentley trial? I don't know no Bentley. All I know the is... Bentley trial, dear. The case you're hearing in court today. Don't worry, Eddie. I'll be there. This gives you another go at Parker. You be sure you don't bungle it this time. Sure, sure. I know all about trials. So do you, Bob. Are you talking to the cab driver, dear? Keep your eye front. You want us to get killed? Sorry, Your Honor. Dear, listen to me. I was talking to Dr. Higgins. He said that... Listen, Rosie, I'm handling it my way. Place comes Bentley. Then comes that St. Louis two-faced double-crossing backstabbing... Fred! I'll show you a few tricks on how to get smiley. Tricks you never even dreamed of. Sure, sure. I go through with the trial and nothing flat. And then we shoot out to St. Louis. What will we do in St. Louis, dear? Not you, just us. Not, not me. Just us. Darling, you frighten me when you talk like this. This is strictly between me and smiley. We're going south together. Uh, on, on a vacation to Florida? Further south. It's a hundred times hotter. Well, it turns out, while Eddie is talking about everything in the cab, the driver's eavesdropping and gives all the info to the opponent's campaign boss, who, of course, calls Smiley. This trial that he's supposed to hear is a murder case. The opposition knows there's no way they could bribe Judge Parker. But Nick uses a little of his influence to get the man with the money to try anyway with Eddie. They do a little shorthand here. They just have, they show Eddie uh, dialing the phone. Nick telling him that, well, you just dial this number and I'll just use a little, uh, some sort of, you know, mental suggestion. Mm-hmm. Devilish magic, I guess, is <laughs> the best way to put it. And the next thing we see is the man, I, they're uh, giving Eddie the, the bag of money. And he does take the money, but then he meets the accused couple. Turns out it's, it's a man and woman who I think um, they're accused of killing her father. Or... Mm-hmm. I think they're attempted to kill her father, but the man ended up maimed, and and right. so it's this big, but this big. It's a, apparently the newspapers picked it up, and so it's this huge issue, and and everybody knows about it. Oh, that's right. They threw him in front of a, a, tra- a subway train. Yeah, a train, I thought they said. But, yeah, uh, but the poor guy lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are worse things, right? Gosh. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the woman of this duo is none other than Rosie, a woman Eddie used to roll with back in the day. And it turns out she was two-timing Eddie the whole time. <laughs> Well, just as a bailiff happened to walk in to let the Judge Parker know that the court's all ready, Eddie throws the money back at the face and tells them all, hey, you can't fix this, not for all the money in the world. He says, I'm going to hit you with everything that I got. And I love it because his, his intention is... You just wait for the trial. Yeah, I, I love it. His intention <laughs> is, is revenge, but it makes him look like such a good guy for rejecting the bribe. Well, once again, Eddie has in, inadvertently foiled Nick's plans and actually helped the judge. This actually brings us up to the one-hour mark, mm. and there's only like 40 minutes to go. It is one of the, well, I'll say, lengthier films that we've covered lately. But the next 40 minutes is really 
it, it's important stuff that I don't really want to ruin. It, yeah, and what's interesting about this is it's kind of like everything kind of builds on each other. You don't have like a a climax and then a big gasp moment because pretty right. much that gasp moment gasp moment comes in the beginning when he gets shot and killed you know <laughs> and then he's and, and from here on it's just he's just basically doing everything he can to be bad and it just happens to turn out to be good you mm-hmm. know and, and it, it's interesting there i i'm kind of stumped on how to explain it but big things keep happening and this movie just never slows down and you don't get bored watching it no, you really don't. No. And it's a fun story watching someone that you, you get the impression who who never got an opportunity to do good. Uh, he came up in a kind of an, in a bad situation. In a rough place, yeah. A rough place uh, with a bad childhood. And the only way he could make anything of himself was by kind of, you know, stepping on somebody else. Well, and I love it because it's, it's kind of a buried comment. But at one point, you know... Uh, Barbara's talking to the doctor and she says, you know, what, what, what could be causing this? And he says, well, maybe he's afraid, you know? And so he's reverting to his childhood of when he grew up in the slums and that's why he's acting this way. So what's interesting is they kind of bury it, but you get the impression that the judge and Eddie had the exact same introduction to life. You know, they both grew up. started out in the same place yeah. and took different paths. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of, you know, the, the long explanation of the story or, the you know, the, the, the long story that this movie is telling is, you know, and, and they get into it at the end, you know, the, the choices that we make and all of that. I don't want to say too mm-hmm. much, but um, and I want to say, too, without giving too much away, I really liked the ending. It's not what you would expect for a typical ending. Um, which I think is why we don't want to get too far into right. it, but but it's interesting. I think I think it's kind of weird because in explaining this is this is one of the rare movies where you really can't express everything that happens because there's so much to it. And I think the more freak, uh, the more times that you watch it, the more you pick up on it, and the more detail you see, and the more intertwined the stories are. So it's uh. You know, they're just little things that we've kind of glossed over. Like when he first meets Barbara, he's like, what's your name? And she says, you know, she's like, what? You know my name? And he says, well, if you won't tell me that, I'm going to call you Rosie. I used to, you know, hey, I forget what he says. I used to go out with a girl named Rosie who we later meet who turns out right. to be, you know, Rosie. <laughs> and, <laughs> and But it's little things like that that just throughout the entire movie you have these little things thrown in there that you don't pick up until the second time you see it. It's, I think it's very intelligently written. Very much. And I, I like the character of Eddie and how he is written because yes, he is a bad man. He's murdered mm-hmm. probably, you know, he, he's done bad things, yeah. but I think he's, he's a good person that's done bad things Yeah, because there's, there's certain every now and again, there's elements where some of the, the, the good in him shows up. There's another time where Nick sort of eggs him on. She's, he's like, Hey, you know, she's, she's yours. You can have her. And he, and he, he looks at her and goes, nah, she ain't like Rosie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So now, does, this is a woman of class. So he's going to treat her with more respect. Well, and even it, I ran across the quote, I've got it pulled up. So I've got to, I know I had it pulled up and, and when they're first kind of introducing when they're first rising up back to go back to, you know, the surface, he mm-hmm. says something about, you know, playing around with dames is dynamite. Like, like it's a bad idea, you know? Right. So, so he, every once in a while he'll say something where, you know, just like with Smiley, he's saying, no, it's our money. You know, he's like, well, you know, eh, you don't, you don't want to mess around with too many women. It's interesting because the whole time Nick is there and it's very much in your face. There's hell, there's the devil, there are people doing some really horrible things. But it's not preachy. <laughs> We've right. lost that art. <laughs> there no longer are movies like this where they're struggling with, you know, difficult moral issues, but it's not preachy. It's really hard to find those anymore. So just from that perspective, it's it's a real treat of a movie. Absolutely. And I think you know, Eddie, I really enjoy. Um, I think Barbara is great. All the char- all the characters, I think, are written really well. And Actually, Claude Rains, the, you know, is is Nick. It's one of my favorite kind of. Whenever I've seen you know, anyone kind of portray "quote unquote" the devil, mm-hmm. I love the sophisticated yes. and, and and kind of polite devil 
I, and I, I totally that's that's one of the best things about I can't think of the bad guy's name in Jessica Jones is he's not I mean, he's not just a totally crazy person. He's very suave. And and that's the thing that I love about it is it's that acknowledgement that, yeah, you can have bad guys out there that do violent things and are horrible and do really horrible things to people. But the worst ones are the ones that try and sneak in their evil. You know, mm-hmm. and you really you really see that dichotomy between Eddie and Nick. Nick really is by definition, the far, far worse one, you know, but right. he seems so smooth. Yes, and he tries to sort of coax people into doing the evil deeds. He, he, you never see him, you know, raising or trying to, or pushing anybody. He's just sort of, why don't you uh, go over and try that? You know, just, why don't you do this? Yeah. yeah. He like it, like he can't really control, but he can't force the, the people. choice, yep. yeah, the choice has to be theirs. And then they are truly his. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. There's the part when they're walking along the street, you know, and at some point Eddie turns and yells at him and, and the first time I watched it, I, you know, I had looked away from the screen for a minute and I look back and I was like, wait, who yelled at who just then? Because yeah. the whole time they're having this kind of calm conversation and then all of a sudden Eddie yells and mm-hmm. then Nick apologizes. And yes. I love it. It's a, it's such an interesting – you can tell that power play. It's really subversive. But I, I might be making more of it than I really should, but it is – I agree with you. I think the, the type of portrayal is a very good one. Yeah, and I, I think they couldn't have found a better person. Mm. Claude Rains. I just, totally agree. He, he's a favorite actor of mine. He, I love listening to him and to hear him give off these these, these suave devil lines. <laughs> yeah. It's just – it was such a treat. With my extremely – uh, conservative background. I hate to say I love watching the devil. I mean, you know, oh, dad, I didn't mean it the way you're hearing it, but anyway. <laughs> but but well, at the same time, well, Nick did Nick did say that meant that many women have worshipped him. I'm not going that far. No, but I I do I I agree with you. I think that he that specifically him playing Nick was just a brilliant choice. And I enjoy watching him playing this character. There, I can say mm-hmm. it that way. Yes, there you go. Perfect. So I think we're both going to come out pretty on kind of the higher end on our ratings. So uh, who wants to go first? I can go first. I was going to give it a strong one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> out, of, out of five, well, actually, you know what? I said I'll go first, but I haven't gotten that far in it with it in my brain. It's I'm somewhere between a four and a five, and I'm really torn. I don't wow. have a good reason not to give it a five. And, and that's where I, I I struggle giving anything a five because typically it has to just blow me out of the water. So I think I'm going to say very strong four because there's a lot of really interesting factors to it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely I, I think this talking to, you know, we always say when we're talking about it with one another, we always think about more things than we had watching it, you know, and it always sure. kind of builds a little bit as we discuss it. And, you know, I think definitely I give it a higher mark now than if you just asked me leading in. So what do you think? But I'm very comfortable giving it a four. Yeah, I think I'm going to go right with you. And I probably would have done the same thing. Had at the beginning of this, had we sat down and said, so what do you think you're going to give it at the end? Maybe a three and a half. I said like a three. But yeah. in thinking, you know, but in thinking about it more and, and remembering from the first viewing to the second viewing and the more of the details and then discussing it, you know, it definitely the rating, the rating raises for me. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, for the era, for the story, especially since I think it's a really unusual way of telling this type of story, I yes. would definitely say more of a four because it's not that really light kind of cheesecake telling you know there's not Mm -hmm. it's not like there's this happy-go-lucky like oh you know better be good or else it's there's a lot more to it than that so yeah i'm I'm gonna say four yeah and i appreciate that this story while isn't unfamiliar it does some things you don't expect yes certainly certainly near the end yes i mean the, the end i think is definitely well, by saying you're not going to expect it, maybe you'll expect it because <laughs> you'll, well, you'll just know it's the opposite of what you were expecting. Right. <laughs> I guess it depends on what you're expecting. <laughs> but it's it's not a, a traditional telling of, you know, bad guy 
is hired to do something bad and then turns into the white hat cowboy. You know, it's not John Wayne right. going from a, a black outfit at the beginning of the movie to a white outfit at the end of the movie and everybody's happy. It's definitely different. But I think that's part of its charm. Yep, very much. It, it is a charming film. I think that's a great way to put it. And I think that's where I can legitimately give it the the solid four that we do. It's not you know, the greatest film that you need to absolutely see or anything. Uh, I would love to see a really good cleaned up print on this one. Uh, the print has some that I saw had some definite uh, issues. Like water damage errors. almost, yeah. Water damage maybe. And in unfor- and, and, and some unfortunate moments too because when the, they were show- doing some of the initial effects of you know the, stepping into the flame mm-hmm. or whatever is some of the most damaged to, uh, portions of the film. And I thought, oh, man, that, that is such a shame. I would love to see this very crisp mm-hmm. and be able to see really how they kind of pulled this off. Well, I feel like they they did a lot to try and make it a little bit uh, weirdly. You know, they they talk about in film they talk about the Hollywood look, where it's mm-hmm. in HD TVs spe- specifically have kind of ruined this. But there's just a little bit of kind of a glaze over it, so it seems just a little bit unreal. And mm-hmm. and I and you can't. I don't know if that was intentional in the scenes when he's going down to hell or not. But it it would help it. I think if you, if you get it too, too crisp, then you've got that issue of 1960s BBC sets that look fake, you know? Um, And they went to so much effort with it that it's anyway, I would, you know, yes, I agree with you. I'd like to see a cleaned up version just to get a better idea of how much of it is the intentional look versus how much of it is damaged film. Well, and when they do some of these, uh, the, the fading effects, like the pass through the doors or walking into the flames, I, I often, which was well done. The, I didn't. It was very well done, and but I often expect in some of these early films to see that kind of shift in film quality because they're effectively laying, you know, one film on top of another. And uh, I think this it was one actually, other than noticeable, it was. I was just saying, other than the water damagey kind of portion in hell when they walk through the flames, mm-hmm. uh, when they're in the uh, the judges' chambers and they're passing through the doors, mm-hmm. it's all fairly seamless. And there are times when it's done when there's action going on. It's yes. not like everyone has to hold in there's like this the split yeah. screen ooh, kind ooh, of ooh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> you have the, uh, the, the one <laughs> the one great moment and uh, the one great moment that's actually even timed really well is Eddie gets back to the apartment and Barbara slams the door yes. just as Nick is walking Nick, up to the door. Yeah, so she's right slamming the door on the devil, but he just walks through it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great moment. So, yeah, I guess that's going to do it. A very charming film. Definitely worth a watch. If you dig it up, go to our YouTube page. It's there now. You can also find it over at Archive, and I, I'm sure it's on some other YouTube channels. But why would you need to go to any of those places when it's right there at the Orphan Entertainment YouTube channel? Yeah, that's where I watched it. (laughs) It's true. It is. Well, Lydia, thank you very much. Once again, I've I've said it a dozen times. I enjoy watching these films, but I enjoy discussing them even more. I look forward to watching them so that I can talk to you about them. Well, we certainly appreciate all our listeners that keep downloading Orphan Entertainment and subscribe to all the the above, the YouTubes and the iTunes or the Stitchers or the Googles. Really appreciate it. I mean, happy 2017, everybody. Yes. Uh, we're gonna happy New Year. We're gonna keep on going. I guess we're working on year six now of Orphan Entertainment, is which is possible? hard to believe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just baffling. Like it sounds like it sounds like schmoozing, but really, anything that you carry on for that long is it's you know kind of gratifying. It is very gratifying, and, I'm, and I don't know about you, but I certainly still enjoy it. Absolutely. So I think we'll uh, we'll keep plugging. Well, I know Christopher, I, I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I have said this probably for at least three years now. But every time we get to a new year, I think there's there, there's I got some great ideas for some future stuff for Orphan Entertainment. So maybe finally 2017 <laughs> will be the year that that something like that actually happens. Um, I'll go ahead and say it, so maybe it'll kind of put oh, us on the go. spot and make us do it. I've I've had the idea, and I've discussed it with Lydia off mic about the idea of doing a uh, a commentary to a film, uh, and maybe even bringing in some silent pictures into the Orphan Entertainment uh, venue, uh, which we can actually do commentary on. Uh, which I or think just voiceover. No, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. just kidding. But yeah, I think. Uh... 
we'd love to hear our listeners take on that. I think if you have a suggestion for a movie that we could do, or if you mm-hmm. think that'd be a great idea, or if you think it would be a horrible idea, please let us know. <laughs> we'd love <laughs> yeah, to get absolutely. feedback. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to finally get that email. They're going to be like, I'd love to hear Lydia discuss this film if Chris would sit out. No, yeah. no. <laughs> I don't think so. But <laughs> but hey, you know, we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully we have some emails on it. We can get Daffy the Duck, or Daffy Duck to sit in on it instead. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, one and all. Lydia, thank you very much once again. Thank you, Christopher. We will see you all back here next month with another fun film, hopefully. And... That's going to do it. So we'll say, I've one of these days I've got to write down a decent outro for me because I always end up stumbling all over. So, you know, what? I'm just going to say, I'm just going to, going to say, bye everyone. Talk to you next time. Once again, from orphaned entertainment, keep watching. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. <laughs> bye. <laughs>